It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world, with its own needs. Something in your own head, beat it up, and I've seen got no sheets. The ladder from the platter with the fear fight down, like fire in a fire. Mr. Chicken Southern Gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, the jury beat it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the Hour of Doom. And Bloom! Hey, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a weekly wonderland in a wasteful world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 700 posts, videos, podcasts, all sorts of stuff on medical preparedness for any disaster. I'm a codger with a calling, I'll admit it, and that is to put a medically prepared person in every family or for any disaster. Absolutely. Any disaster. And boy, there's a whole bunch of them, right? True that. I am Amy Alton, also known as Nurse Amy. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. That's right. And the hostess with the mostest. And together we are the watchers on the wall. <laughs> and we watch it all for you to help you keep it together, even if everything else falls apart. apart. Wah, wah. <laughs> Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with a lonely llama? Well, our attorney says, don't call me. Call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the host and listeners, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. That's right. Don't admit to listening to anything we say, but I'll bet some of this stuff makes sense to you. Aha, uh-huh. how about uh-huh. that? All right. Well, do you out there, dear listeners, have a pearl of wisdom somewhere in that oyster of yours? Well, we want to... Hear all about it, so here's the lovely Nurse Amy to tell you how to reach us. Absolutely. You can contact us anytime, anytime, by email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. You can find us at Twitter, at Prepper Show. You can join our Facebook group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. We have a couple Facebook pages, Doom and Bloom and Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And don't forget our YouTube channel, Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy, and our video cast at AroundTheCabin.com, the first and third Wednesdays of, of every month. Every month, that's right, that's right. And I want to at least extend my thanks to everybody. It's near Thanksgiving, and 
I hope that you all have or have had a wonderful Thanksgiving. And we want to specifically thank everyone who listens to us because we are honestly blessed to have the support and kind words of so many people that you know, every Thanksgiving we have to just say it out loud to everyone. And that's what I think people do. People don't thank people enough. Yes, thank you everybody for listening. And thanks for the support. That's right. And I'm glad you're all here, hopefully healthy and happy. True dat, true dat. Hey, you know, one thing you can count on seeing every winter is a flu outbreak. Now, influenza is a viral respiratory illness. It's the cause of many, many worldwide pandemics. A pandemic is an epidemic that is essentially in a number of different regions and with community-wide outbreaks. And in 1918, the Spanish flu epidemic or pandemic spread throughout the globe, killed close to 100 million people. It is pretty amazing that a flu without airplanes and the ability to move from one side of the globe to the next within hours was able to kill that many people. It just shows that people did travel, and it was so highly contagious that it just kind of jumped on one person who went to the next town, jumped off them, jumped on everybody else, caught the next traveler that was going to the next nearest town, and, and just spread Person to person. Right. Well, there wasn't air travel, so it actually took a couple of weeks to get by boat from Europe to the U.S., and it still managed to spread within a matter of months, uh, too, just about everywhere in the world. Imagine how fast that it would spread now with commercial air travel. We'd be on the other side of the world by tonight. I know. It's pretty shocking. It is shocking. You know, many people despite there not being a pandemic necessarily going on at a particular time, mm-hmm. get the flu pretty much every year. Uh, one in five, maybe one in 20, depending on the year and type of strain. But what I'm trying to get at is the development of vaccines. Now, vaccines work by exposing you to the previous year's virus in the hope that you'll develop immunity to this year's version. Now, the Food and Drug Administration has just approved a new type of flu vaccine with a booster meant to improve the immune system, especially in the elderly. And this new vaccine called Fluad claims to translate into better outcomes among older people. Now, I'm saying saying that it claims to give better outcomes, and I'm not telling you that it does for sure. I don't know. I need to do your own research, come to your own conclusions. Don't shoot the messenger. (laughs) As a matter of fact, we're not promoting the use of vaccinations. That is an individual decision. If you have a child that has certain conditions and the vaccines will help protect the child in life and death situations, if you have elderly folk that are in nursing homes and they're exposed to a, a large group of people who could get them sick and the vaccinations could help protect them and help them live longer, that is an individual decision. It's not us telling you to get vaccinations. We're not saying they're good or bad. Each person has to make an individual decision for themselves and for their family members. Well, I think this this is just an FYI. This is what's out. This is what's new. Well, just want to be clear. But I do want to say that I definitely believe in some vaccinations are definitely effective and have proven over many years to be relatively safe. And there are other ones that aren't. And have so questions good. and have questions okay. about them. And that's right. Not all vaccines are created equal. That's right. That's what I think everybody Absolutely. needs to know. 
Now, Fluad, this vaccine that I'm talking about today, contains something called MF-59, a sort of a mystery mixture that includes squalene, which is an oily nutrient produced by the liver, but also seen in sharks, shark liver, uh, certain birds, uh, amaranth seeds, and some other places. And it also, of course, contains some preservatives. Now, when incorporated into vaccines, MF-59 increases the number of immune cells, apparently, that are activated and gets your immune system going. Mm -hmm. Now, from a pandemic standpoint, there's another benefit that adding MF-59 might help extend the supplies of vaccines because people apparently need a lower dose of the vaccine if it's got MF-59. If it's mixed with this. Okay, it it boosts not only your immune system, but it boosts the effectiveness of this vaccination. Right, and might allow you to have... Less vaccine, right? Lower dose of vaccine given to you, and of course that would allow more people to receive it. Okay. The government actually considered using MF59 when the swine flu arrived in the U.S. in 2009, Uh, but although supplies were short, MF59 was not used because of the expected resistance to this new ingredient. And there is, of course, a lot of resistance. I know a lot of. Our listeners are not big fans of vaccines, of course. Uh, Now, U.S. government officials have been wary about using it in vaccines because of this public suspicion. But you might be surprised to know that this Fluad vaccine has been in use in Europe and Canada for almost 20 years. And it took that long for the FDA to declare it to be safe and effective here. Now, vaccine effectiveness, that's a big issue because last year's vaccine, flu vaccine, that is, was only about 20% effective in preventing the flu in people who took it. Now, normally you'd want to have a vaccine to be at least 60-70% effective or more if you're going to expose all these people to it. And so that's that, I think, is one thing that's very, very important. Now, there are two reasons why they think that last year's vaccine failed, relatively speaking. Now, the formulation may not be effective against a particular virus if the virus mutates, right? That would be one reason. Or if a new virus arrives, it just doesn't have the same genetic makeup as the old virus. Of course, if the vaccine, for some reason, is too weak to activate a person's immune system, it won't work to produce antibodies against the virus, and that's what protects you from getting the influenza. Now, tests show that Fluad, or at least claim that Fluad works at least as well as the vaccines are already on the market and might boost a elderly person's protection from H3N2 influenza virus, one of the currently circulating strains of this um, deadly influenza. Of course, you know that influenza has been called the old man's friend, and that's simply because it ends their suffering, and I mean permanently. <laughs> so this is something that might be useful for the elderly. Now, Oh, by the way, this H3N2, if type A influenza viruses, which are the most common, are categorized by certain proteins on their surface, hemagglutinins, H, and neuraminidases, N. So that's what the H and the N come, come from. Each one of these proteins that are on the surface has subtypes. And so depending on the subtype, then that gives them the numbers. So H3N2 is one of the currently circulating strains of influenza. Swine flu was H1N1. Some bird flus are like H9N7. So there's about 18 different subtypes 
of H and I think 16 different subtypes of N's. Now, the CDC recommends, I have to tell you what the CDC recommends, that everyone over six months of age receive the vaccine. Now, despite this, there are only about 148 million doses that do get it distributed in the U.S., a country with a population of more than 300 million, and this is because of concerns on the part of many of adverse reactions. Now, some believe the reluctance is also partly due to the fact that it's usually given as an injection. So there is a nasal mist that's usually given in kids. And unfortunately, there are a lot of shortages re- reported of this mist, which I think uh, Baltimore just recently reported that they're just playing out of this this stuff. Now, the big concern, I think, is the possibility of an adverse reaction to something in the vaccine. Ill effects of flu vaccine can be minor or major. Now, basically... The minor problems would be some pain and swelling and maybe some redness at the site of injection. Um, you'll get flu-like symptoms in some cases, and those are pretty actually relatively common, That, but they usually last just a couple of days. So you might get uh, cough, fatigue, malaise, you know, whatever you would ordinarily feel when you get the flu, you might, you might experience that. Now, even though the minor symptoms go away in a couple of days, it doesn't mean, however, this serious problems can't occur with vaccines. Uh, one in about 100,000 or so people, uh, maybe a million, may uh, develop a disorder called Guillain-Barre syndrome, and that can cause long-term damage to nerves. And so this is something that if somebody gets Guillain- this syndrome, Guillain-Barre, uh, they wind up having some permanent damage as a result of taking a shot that was intended as a preventative. In other words, was given to someone who wasn't sick, but hopefully trying to prevent a sickness. You won't find flu ad on pharmacy shelves this year, but it should be available next year. Will it decrease flu-related deaths among older citizens in the U.S.? Well, I guess we're just going to have to wait until 2016 to find out. Oh, before we go much further, I just want to say that we have a game, a board game called Doom and Bloom Survival, and I just want to let... People know that if you're looking for a Christmas present for an older child or for a member of the family that is not a prepper, but you'd like them to get a little more interested in it, well, I think our game, Doom and Bloom Survival, is the ticket. Absolutely. And what do you think about it? I was going to say a suggestion that it could be for your prepper friends, too. Ah, that's right. That is a good idea. <laughs> it's, a, it's a fun game. It... Uh, is usually played with two to four players, mm-hmm. but you can play it alone or you can play it with more than four if you need to. And we have just gotten a set of plastic miniatures to go along with the game that we're going to be giving away free to anyone who orders one of our games. And let's just be clear, if you order the games on our store at store.doandbloom.net, not only does it come with your eight plastic miniatures, think little toy soldiers, but in amazing details... Right. Incredible. They are, they just came out so, so amazing. I love them. So you get a set of eight of the miniatures, one for each character. You will also get a nylon backpack with the game survival logo on it. Uh-huh. And you will get a DVD. That's right. Survival Medicine. Yep. Exactly. Survival Medicine DVD, which is almost two hours right. of incredible slides. And uh, it's a visual addendum to our book. You get lots and lots of pictures, and we explain to you what the issue is. How are you going to be? And how to be a successful medic in times of trouble. Right. 
Exactly. Well, anyhow, if you're interested in checking out the game, go to survivalboardgame.com and you'll <laughs> and you'll see the game in action. Okay, enough of that. Now, I want to talk a little bit about some medical emergencies. Remember, we had talked um, a couple of weeks ago about heart attacks. We talked uh, mm-hmm. last week about what you do if you encounter somebody who has We've fainted. talked about Did choking. We... Choking, lately? yes, air- airway obstruction. Yeah. Did we talk about fainting? I don't know about that. I don't know if you got to fainting. Hmm. I don't think you made it all the way there. I don't think we talked about head injuries either. Definitely not head injuries. All right, well, let's talk about that. All right, well... Obviously, I had a head injury this week. Yes, you did. I had my second head injury in the past, I think, three months. First, I whacked my head on the rearview mirror, mm-hmm. bending down That's to true. try to pick yeah. up. Terrible. I think it was my glasses. I had fallen off my head. Smacked my head straight into the rearview mirror as hard as could be. Got a little confused there. Didn't pass out, and I made you drive. Yep. <laughs> we got home, put I some ice that. on it. I never lost consciousness, and I knew who nope. I was the whole and time. And <laughs> I was observing you closely. You were very, very good. But uh, three days ago, no. You anyway, whacked yourself on, on Monday, the table, I think, right? Monday or Tuesday, yeah. Hard, hard, hard. Smack my head. We have a clear breakfast table, and I dropped something, and I threw my head down to pick it up and whacked my head on the edge of the glass table. Really hard. Same exact location, which is what's scary about head injuries. And I know you're going to talk about this. A second injury in the same location soon after is what's dangerous. I think I was more confused this time. Well, the concern you have is that you had a relative that passed away from an aneurysm, which is sort of like a hernia in a blood vessel, a weakening of the wall of a blood vessel. Or like a little pouch. Sometimes it looks like a little pouching. Right. Yes, yes, and it pops. It causes bleeding into the brain. Because the walls are thinner, and if you're under more pressure, let's say you get high blood pressure, that's someone who's more susceptible to popping the walls of an aneurysm, whereas if you keep normal blood pressure and you don't get angry and freaked Arr. out a lot <laughs> and increase your blood pressure, even temporarily, uh, some people live with aneurysms. There are times when they need to uh, surgically fix them uh-huh. because they are afraid at some point that you will pop open. Right. Some people live in it. bleed. That's true. It, and you can die from that. Absolutely. And many people actually live their entire life with one and they find it on autopsy, you know, when they die of some other cause uh, and never really had a problem, never even knew they had it. Right. But in any case, today we're talking about head injuries. And of course, a person can collapse as a result of a trauma to the skull, causing a loss of consciousness. You luckily didn't lose consciousness no, after either of your bumps on the head. And no, that, of course, is the most common cause. And of, that's the first thing you look for. Right, exactly. If you're not observing the person who's just hit their head, you ask them, did you lose consciousness? Most people will know when they went out for a second. Right. you kind of blank out. But... You need to ask that first. That's very, very important. Right, and it's a, that's the difference between a mild trauma, a bump to the head, and an actual traumatic brain injury, or TBI. Uh, the most common one of those uh, is a concussion, and it occurs when the brain is shaken as a result of the force of the blow. 
Uh, a victim of a concussion uh, is going to appear sort of dazed. They may behave sort of strangely. <laughs> I did. <laughs> I did. And may not remember the events immediately prior to the injury, which, I don't know, did you remember? Yes, I remembered exactly what I did. Uh-huh. However, I, I did feel dazed, and, you know, I just kept staring, and I didn't want to talk. Which mm-hmm. is very unusual for me. <laughs> very peaceful. If somebody is very talkative and suddenly they become very quiet and just sort of look around. And they're answering a second or two after you ask them the question. Because you could see they're searching for the answer. Uh-huh. Even if they do answer properly, there's just a little something going on there. So you've got to watch them very closely. Of course, if there's bleeding, you need to stop it. Apply some direct pressure. To the area, that's going to be important. And also, when you apply pressure, you probably have the ability to evaluate the wound as well. Now, if there's swelling, you can apply ice packs for 20 to 30 minutes, let's say every two hours to areas that uh, look swollen. You give some Tylenol for pain. Uh, I would avoid aspirin and ibuprofen, which can increase the risk of hemorrhage, however. So we're talking about Tylenol. Tylenol. Just to give you guys right. a little hint. Right. That's Tylenol. Why, that's, why, that's one awesome. of the reasons why we have Tylenol in a lot of our medical gifts. Mm-hmm. Uh, you want to observe this person closely for 48 hours. And things that are sort of warning signs that there's something going on inside the brain or it's, they have difficulty getting up or you have difficulty waking them, if their mental status seems to worsen over time or if they have a headache that will gets worse over time instead of better uh, with time after the injury. Oh, right. I had a headache. It got better. And it got better. And I was a little dazed, and then I got better. Right. Now, in certain situations, you'll see people with vomiting. People start having slurred speech. These are signs that might indicate there is bleeding inside Mm -hmm. the brain from the trauma. That is very scary. Other signs that are pretty striking sometimes are bruising around the eyes and the back of the ears. Now, the bruising around the eyes makes you look a little bit like a raccoon, so that's actually called raccoon sign. And the ones in back of the ears, that's a sign they know, that's known as battle's sign. I'm pretty sure that's because of somebody named Battle that first described it. Now, some of these issues are going to be a big problem for the survival medic because you're not going to be able to identify the person that's bleeding inside the brain until they are showing signs of pressure from that blood pressing on parts of the brain that people need to function so that is a big problem it's going to be difficult to treat somebody with an internal hemorrhage of the brain or a stroke or heart attack without some kind of advanced technology uh, it's going to be hard to do it. You can try, but... Mostly it's going to be a, a watch and wait. Now, the interesting thing keeping is... Keeping people calm, keeping is, people relaxed. Right. In caveman days, mm-hmm. they actually, shamans, actually perform a procedure called trepanation. and Which is shocking. And that is a procedure, right, in which they would actually cut a hole in the head of... The bone, the actual right. skull. Folks, we're not talking about cutting a hole in the skin of the head. They actually cut a hole into the skull. There is a piece of skull bone missing, a circle, 
probably about the size of a quarter usually. Right. Is what they found. And I don't know whether that eliminated bleeding they don't or know whether why. they they right. don't know why they, they don't did know it. why it was done. Or somebody thought somebody was crazy and they figured this would <laughs> cure them. They're not sure why, but, but the, what they have found is They did do a surgical procedure. They did a surgical procedure and a lot of them there was new bone growth, which means that the person survived the procedure. Yes. So I thought that was very very inter- very interesting, honestly. Well, it, it is amazing that the body is, is such an incredible uh, healer. You right. really can heal from a lot of things that you wouldn't think someone can heal from. So even though we might be in survival situations, there may be you know, what most of us would consider miracles that happen without hospitals and without modern medicine. Um, we might get better from things we never thought we could get better from. It's true. So... Hopefully we'll never see, but there's hope. Always hope. That's right. Always hope. Now, the other thing I wanted to mention was something called the recovery position, which is very helpful in dealing with an unconscious person. If you have somebody that's collapsed, they're unconscious, you need to get help. You don't want them just laying on their back or laying in whatever position they happen to be in. You want them to be in a position that's going to at least make sure that the airway is relatively open. Mm -hmm. And And, if they regurgitate or vomit, that they don't choke on it. People have actually died from this happening. They have had too much alcohol or drugs in their system. They've pretty much been unconscious, and they have vomited, and they have what's called aspiration, and they have choked and died because of vomiting. So this this recovery position is something that allows the vomit or vomitus to flow out of the mouth. Right, and prevent this aspiration of these fluids into the lungs. And this is what caused the death of a lot of rock stars in the 60s and 70s. In other words, I think uh, Mama Cass of the Mamas and the Papas, I think Jim Morrison of the Doors, maybe Jimi Hendrix, that they died of overdoses, but what actually physically killed them It's not necessarily so that the heroin or whatever they happen to be right, taking reduce their respiration or, and cause them to or die. Cause them to have a heart attack. Right. It probably caused them to be so out of it with so much alcohol or other yuck in their system that they just vomited while they were unconscious. When if you vomit when you're unconscious, it can go down your lungs. If it does that, it's essentially like a huge burn in your lungs. You obviously can't breathe and you die. And so that's it. So hopefully the recovery position is some way that you can avoid this and possibly number one you could stay with the patient if you get if help is coming but if help isn't coming you can run and get help and and be at least relatively assured that they're not going to uh, vomit into their I guess down the wrong pipe. Down the wrong pipe wrong is pipe. probably the easiest way to say it. Now Absolutely. to to achieve the recovery position what you want to do is you kneel on one side of the patient and you position the patient's arm up perpendicular to the body, you flex the elbow and you position the other arm across the body. Then you bend the leg that's farthest from you up, reach behind the knee and then pull the thigh towards you. Now, if you do that, then they'll wind up basically on their side with the lower leg straight, the upper leg bent pretty much at a 90 degree angle. This will serve as a stabilizer to keep the body in that position. And 
the head resting on one arm, basically, mouth facing forward, or face, uh, the face towards the ground, and the other arm, uh, the upper arm, I guess, uh, when you're on your side. The upper arm will be pretty much bent and out of the way. So that's something. I'm, I'll tell you that CPR is going to have more limited uses in situations where modern medical facilities aren't available, but it's still very important to know. So this is something that you should not only be skilled in knowing how to perform CPR, but how to put it people in recovery position, how to do the Heimlich maneuver to get, get an airway obstruction clear. And you should teach these things to every one of your group members. It's very important so that they will have the best chance to deal with an issue when you might not be around. That, I think, is very, very important. You know, we're going to take a very short break. You're listening to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Joe Alden, MD of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 600 posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. Along with my wife, nurse practitioner Amy Alden, we're the authors of the Amazon bestseller, The Survival Medicine Handbook, with over 200 five-star reviews. A disaster can strike at any time, and the ambulance may not always be heading in your direction. We've got an entire line of medical kits, supplies, and educational resources that can help you deal with injuries and illness in everything from a wilderness hike to the aftermath of a major disaster. Check them out at our shop at store.doomandbloom.net. In a disaster, you'll be glad you did. Hey, thanks for hanging in there. This is the Survival Medicine Hour with Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, and we're here to give you more education. (laughs) That's right. You know, I was speaking to my friend uh, Gay Levy of Backdoor Survival, Mm -hmm. and she asked me to put together an article for her about natural treatments for diabetes. Now, that isn't that easy to do. That is a tough one. That isn't that easy to do because there are a lot of problems that you have with diabetes that are difficult to deal with at least reliably with natural substances but there are a lot of substances in which there are reported benefits Mm -hmm. and a lot of these are natural herbs that you can grow on your own there are all sorts of different things and honestly it's going to be one of the most difficult issues that a medical encounter in a survival setting is going to be that of chronic illnesses like diabetes in the U.S., or and I high think, blood pressure and high blood pressure would be yeah. another one. Absolutely. In the U.S., I think there are more than 29 million diabetics. I think one million of those require insulin, and those people are going to have the most trouble getting into control and staying healthy. Unless they invent a powder form of insulin. That's right. Or that an or, oral that, form of insulin, right? That can be, no, reconstituted. Oh, right, and yes. And have a long-lasting shelf life. That's the whole point of turning insulin into something that has a long, long, long shelf life. And I'm not talking about weeks. I'm talking months or years. Years is what they need to get out of this. And they just haven't been able to do it quite yet. So hopefully there's lots of researchers out there that are attempting to do this it's not only important for the survival during a disaster but it's also important for survival in third world countries where they don't have refrigeration sure they don't have access to ice packs or um you know any kind of temperature lowering ability 
So it's important for a lot of people in the world today. And since those people need it also, it's going to translate into a solution for those who may be in situations that they are not used to and they don't have refrigeration. Exactly. So I'm hoping that solution is just around the corner and we can announce it and you guys can find out where to get this long storage insulin. Right. Well, this is something that you never know what's going to come around the pike. That's right. You know, there's all sorts of different I know they're working things. on it. I know right. it. I've read, I've read bits and pieces of, of various studies. Uh, they just cannot perfect it yet. Yeah, I really believe that pretty much every 10 years, medicine just changes all around, mm-hmm. at least with all the technology, modern stuff that comes around, and the new medicines. You never know what's going to be available exactly it's just like probably never knew that smartphones 10 years ago or 15 years ago or 20 years ago were going to be such a big deal yet most people can't live without them right nowadays now i do want to mention there is inhaled insulin yes that is not what i'm talking about i'm talking about the insulin that can be reconstituted and actually injected and diabetes is such a big issue it causes damage to the heart the kidneys the eyes extremities it affects the nerves and and the blood vessels the circulation in your extremities Uh, i know i've got a kid who is indeed a pretty bad diabetic or was a pretty bad diabetic so bad he was in his 20s and he was on dialysis and he lost part of his eyesight and his uh, kidneys had failed and he just got lucky and managed to get a kidney transplant and they even transplanted his pancreas and now he doesn't even need insulin anymore, which is pretty amazing. So there's actually a cure for right. diabetes. He's not a diabetic. You just need you to just have... have to, the problem is you have to get deathly ill, right? which no one wants to do. It's only when you get deathly ill that do you Do they become, allow you to become a recipient? Yeah, because that's how they judge who gets it. Of a pancreas, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or pancreatic cells. Not the entire pancreas, but... It was but, a piece. But certain pancreatic... Right. Certain pancreatic cells called islet cells, I-S-L-E-T, are what actually produce insulin so he actually for the first time in many years actually produces his own insulin he's not diabetic now that doesn't mean that he would survive a a a true disastrous scenario because he has to take these anti-rejection right. drugs well that's I, a whole different ballgame he right. went he right he stepped from the frying pan into the oven right basically it's he still has to rely on medication for survival but oh what well, are you going to say? Right. Well, it is a, a common thing. Luckily, 20, 28 out of... now, he doesn't have diabetes. Right. For now, he doesn't have diabetes. The, the grand majority are type 2 diabetics, which are the diabetics that used to be called diet controlled. They used to control them with diet, but now they're actually more aggressive and are treating them with medications like metformin and other and others. Uh, it's just a, a very common illness, and it's something that very few medics in survival settings aren't going run across and so let's talk a little bit about diabetes just so you understand how the body works your body works to process food that you take in into energy right now when you eat food is turned into something called glucose and they sort of use slang to call it sugar it's a it's a type of sugar now an organ in the body called the pancreas which I just mentioned, releases a substance called insulin in response, uh, which is produced in those islet cells that I told you about. And insulin allows the glucose to be used for energy. 
Now, in a diabetic, this process doesn't work because of various reasons. The pancreas might not produce enough insulin, or certain factors may cause the body to be resistant to its effects. That's what a type 2 diabetes is thought to be, mostly insulin resistance. By the way, we've gone into really significant detail on diabetes and what to do in survival settings in a series of five articles we did some time ago. And you can find it, I think it's called Diabetes and Survival Settings, Part 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. But today I want to talk about what natural options you might have that could be effective or could have some effect at least against diabetes. Now, alternative therapies encompass a variety of different things. It includes uh, dietary changes, uh, exercise, lifestyle changes, of course, herbal remedies, even acupuncture, yoga, hypnosis, biofeedback, aromatherapy, oh boy, just like a million different things. But the before you embark, by the way, on one of these natural therapies, I think it's always a good idea to have a, a discussion with your medical caregiver if you have a significant or serious medical illness or chronic medical condition. It's going to be much more difficult to control type 1 diabetes, as we mentioned, insulin-dependent diabetes, than the more much more common type 2. Uh, with, with either conventional or alternative strategies, to be honest. So always let your medical practitioner know what alternative remedies that you might be considering or that you might be taking because there could indeed be some effect with your conventional therapy or some interaction it might work less, might work more with whatever conventional therapy that you're taking. So having said all that, there's actually quite a few natural substances that have been put forth as being helpful for the control of diabetes and many of these are best for type 2 diabetics. Now, there's a lack of hard scientific data on some of these, and variability exists in terms of the effect on each individual, but here are some natural substances taken alphabetically that may have a beneficial effect on glucose control, and you'll see there are quite a few. Let, let's start with, well, we're going to go alphabetically, I guess, aloe vera. Aloe vera is a plant that uh, we use commonly for burns and things like that, but apparently aloe may lower blood glucose in type 2 diabetics, especially when it's used in conjunction with some of the conventional drugs. So sometimes you can mix a conventional and a medicinal herb, put them together, and actually get a synergistic or an effect that's better than either of them alone. Now, basil is an herb that is commonly used in cooking, has a lot of actual benefits from a medicinal standpoint and the leaf and seed of some types of basil may actually help people with type 2 diabetes control their blood sugar the seed may work by providing fiber and that may slow the elevation of blood sugar levels after meals then there's bilberry bilberry contains not a guy named bilberry but it's a plant named bilberry contains substances called anthocyanocytes, and these improve blood flow, and that may help prevent vessel damage caused by type 2 diabetes. Then there's bitter lemon. Bitter lemon contains several substances, including some actual substances that are like insulin, or insulin-like compounds that may lower blood sugars in type 2 diabetics as well. Cayenne pepper. Cayenne contains capsaicin, something we've talked about before as a form of natural pain relief. And indeed, capsaicin creams may improve pain due to damaged nerves in diabetes. So some things 
can be helped with a, a particular herb and some other aspects of diabetes, maybe another herb will help or another plant will help. Then there are supplements like uh, chromium. Chromium supplements improve sensitivity to insulin in those who are resistant to it. It's thought to be helpful in those who are pre-diabetic and also maybe in women who have pregnancy-related diabetes. Now, cinnamon is a spice that apparently the regular intake of it may help reduce levels of blood glucose by augmenting the action of insulin. So there are a number of different things that actually will help insulin work better and maybe decrease the resistance of the body to the action of insulin. Uh, Coenzyme Q10, now that's something that I'm sure you've all heard about. I take it on a regular basis and it's necessary for normal blood sugar metabolism. And type 2 diabetics have been shown to have lower CoQ10 levels than non-diabetics and this suggests that supplementation might be helpful in control. Evening primrose oil, that's another one. About four grams of evening primrose oil a day apparently improves over time the pain associated with diabetic nerve damage. Fenugreek. Fenugreek has been reported by some to improve glucose control in both type 1 and type 2 diabetics. may even lower cholesterol in those with coronary artery disease. Now remember, your results may vary on these. So some of these may work in a significant fashion. Some of them may work in less significant fashion. Uh, ginseng, uh, American ginseng, and there are several kinds, gives some sugar-lowering effects, as also decreases hemoglobin A1C levels. Hemoglobin A1C is a blood test of a substance like glycosylated hemoglobin in your blood that measures how your control of sugar has been over the last, let's say, three months. And so this is something that diabetics get checked on a regular basis, and it gives an idea of how well you've done controlling your diet and taking your insulin and things like that. Glucomanin. Now, glucomanin is a fiber derived from cognac root. Uh, it delays stomach emptying, and that leads to a slower absorption of dietary sugars, and this results in lower glucose levels after eating. That makes perfect sense. Gymnema. Now, their leaves of this plant has been documented in certain studies to raise insulin levels in people that are not diabetics. And so it's possible that it may have some benefit in raising insulin levels in people that are diabetics. Now, this is, again, very preliminary preliminary stuff, and there's quite a lot more research that needs to be done on that. L-carnitine. Now, L-carnitine helps you utilize fat to produce energy. And when people with diabetes were given L-carnitine, high blood levels of fats decreased, and that includes triglycerides and cholesterol. So it's a generally good thing for people who are diabetic. Uh, Magnesium is uh, a lot of people take magnesium supplements. Type 2 diabetics often have low magnesium levels and actually benefit from getting a little extra magnesium into their system. And it's thought to increase insulin production in older people and type 2 diabetics. So that's something that you definitely can try. You have mistletoe. Remember, I'm going alphabetically. So some of these things are elements and some of these things are plants or specific compounds. Uh, Animal studies suggest that mistletoe, yep, 
holiday mistletoe can stimulate insulin secretion from pancreatic cells, which might decrease glucose levels in people that have type 2 diabetes. Uh, onion has allopropyl disulfide, uh, APDS, and certain flavonoids, uh, you probably have heard that, such as quercetin, we'll talk about that in a second, and that's thought to produce the uh, prolong rather the effect of insulin and stimulate insulin production as well, and thereby increasing the control that you have over your sugars. Psyllium, the fiber in psyllium, may improve blood glucose in some diabetics. Uh, quercetin, which I had just mentioned, that can help diabetics by reducing levels of sorbitol, which is a sugar that accumulates in nerves and kidneys and the eyes of people with type 2 diabetes. Vanadium, vanadium is an element that in preliminary studies have helped improve blood glucose levels in diabetic animals. When humans with type 2 diabetic diabetes were given vanadium, a decrease in insulin resistance was noted. So that's pretty, pretty cool there. Uh, vitamins. Now, there are lots of different vitamins in the B class, vitamin B1, B6, B7, B12. These vitamins are thought to be actually pretty deficient in diabetics that have nerve damage. And supplementation has been associated with an improvement in the pain that people have from nerve damage. Taking vitamin B7, by the way, also called biotin, for two months, dropped fasting blood levels significantly in some patients. Now, vitamin C, like quercetin, vitamin C may reduce levels of sorbitol that we just uh, talked about. Also, 500 milligrams of vitamin C twice a day decreases loss of protein in the urine of diabetics. High levels of protein in the urine are associated with poor outcomes in diabetics. Vitamin D, vitamin D is necessary to maintain normal blood levels of insulin, and the cells that produce insulin in the pancreas have receptors that accept vitamin D, and this suggests that giving more vitamin D may actually help improve sugar control. And then all the way, now we're all the way down to Z, and I guess you know that I'm going to be talking about zinc, that people with type 2 diabetes are often zinc deficient, and adding some through the diet or with supplements may correct the deficit. Now all this doesn't take into account some techniques that aren't associated with ingesting a substance. I'm talking about things like yoga, like acupuncture. These methods are valid options, as is strict attention to diet, exercise, and lifestyle, especially for type 2 diabetics. All of these can be incorporated as a component of a holistic approach to sugar. And again, you can expect the effectiveness of different modalities, different alternative treatments to vary greatly from person to person. It will work great for some people, not so much for others. And you might be surprised to hear this about what I think is going to happen in a true survival scenario. I think the condition of some type 2 diabetics may actually not worsen, indeed might even improve. We're going to see restrictions in diet, uh, increased physical exertion necessary for activities of daily survival. They may have a positive effect. Diet and exercise. You're, not eating, you're going to be eating less and you're going to be doing a lot more work. And so this may have a positive effect. It's basically telling those obese folks that have type 2 diabetes that uh, live a couch potato lifestyle that, hey, there's not so much food available and you got to do some sweating to the oldies to actually survive a true disaster. So I think from a glucose standpoint, the type 2 diabetics may actually not be in such bad shape. 
Let's see, we just have a few minutes left in our show, so I want to talk a little bit about Bloody Nose. Now, I spoke about Bloody Nose a few weeks ago, and I think that it's something that's going to be pretty commonplace, both from traumatic events uh, in a survival setting, or some people just may have nosebleeds because of blood pressure issues or other types of of medical problems, or even just dry nasal cavities, depending on the climate that you happen to live in. The standard treatment, of course, for nosebleeds is simply to grab the soft part of the nose just below your nose bone, I'll call it that, and uh, bend forward. Now, some people bend backwards. No, don't do that. The blood will just go down the back of your throat. In that circumstance, bend forward so that you know exactly how much bleeding you're doing and so that you'll have the best chance of actually stopping that bleeding. Now, when that fails, in the emergency room, they've often, in the past, used lidocaine with epinephrine, which is the uh, local anesthetic that you use to for wound closures and things like that. And they use actually cocaine, which you can spray up into the nose and have an effect that is what they call vasoconstrictive. That means it closes blood vessels. And you close the blood vessels, the bleeding stops. So great, but it's not easy to get a hold of lidocaine. It's not easy to certainly get a hold of cocaine, I hope, for you guys. So what do you do in these circumstances when... Simple pressure, direct pressure onto the nose does not work. Well, you can consider the use of something called oxymetazoline, and that's generic afrin. Amazingly, afrin can be used to stop nosebleeds, and not only to stop nosebleeds, but apparently is better than lidocaine and epinephrine, and even cocaine as a method to decrease the amount of bleeding and also appears to not need a nasal packing, in other words, gauze put in the nose for to apply pressure to the bleeding areas, often as some of these other pretty significant medications. So there was one study which uh, compared lidocaine and epinephrine against cocaine and against afrin. They found that lidocaine and epinephrine was about 29% effective, that cocaine was 57% effective, and that afrin was 86% effective in preventing bleeding during nasal surgical procedures. And so you've got a less expensive medication. You've got a lower side effect profile in oxymetazoline, not zero. I mean, it does have some effect on uh, heart rate and, and blood pressure perhaps, but not zero. So it actually is a not unreasonable choice for preventing and treating nosebleeds. So this is pretty darn good. It is something that you can accumulate without a prescription. You can accumulate as much of it as you can afford to, and it will work better than a lot of the medications that are difficult to get a hold of. And how do I know that it would work in an off-grid setting? Because they use it at the Mount Everest Base Camp Medical Clinic. I mean, conditions there are hostile, as you can imagine, and pretty much every case of nosebleed that they have there are pretty heavy duty, and it's worked for them. So what do you need to do to stop a heavy nosebleed with Afrin? Well, you need bottle Afrin. <laughs> Definitely need a bottle of Afrin. You need 
uh, gloves and uh, probably good to have a mask because there be, might be some blood splatter. Uh, you want a bowl to capture any runoff blood. You want tissue for patients uh, to have to wipe their nose. Uh, cotton balls for packing. could be you, you could use cotton balls for packing or you can use gauze for packing. So what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to squirt the oxymetazoline, the afrin, directly into the nose. Uh, if You could also, by the way, use a syringe. You could always take the afrin and drain it into... Uh, a medicine cup, uh, maybe one milliliter or 1.5 milliliters, and just put in a 3cc syringe and just squirt that up. So that's another option for you. And another option is to soak a cotton ball in the oxymetazoline and that the afrin, and that will help as well. That only helps to constrict the blood vessels so there's less bleeding but also applies a little bit of pressure if you put it in a cotton ball so what you're going to do is you're going to ask the patient to blow their nose clear all the blood blood clots from the nasal passage that'll clear the nasal cavity temporarily although it's probably going to keep the it's not going to stop the bleeding certainly it might worsen as a matter of fact but what it does is it exposes the lining of the nose more so that the medication is more effective Position the patient about, I don't know, 45 degrees recumbent in the bed at about a 45-degree angle. Then you squirt into the effective nostril, and you want to administer 1 to 1.5 milliliters of the spray into the nostril. Now, the reason why people sometimes drain the afrin into a medicine cup is because it allows them to be more certain that they're giving one milliliter exactly, 1.5 milliliter. I mean, if I'm squirting an Afrin bottle, I probably really wouldn't know if when I've gotten to that exact level or that amount of, of spray in their nose. Now, you want to ask them to inhale through their nose during the time you're spraying, uh, allow the patient to capture any runoff blood, and, of course, Afrin solution that may drip out. Then you take a cotton ball soaked with the Afrin and roll it into like a cigarette shape, put it into the bleeding nostril and put it in the other nostril, of course, if that's also bleeding, repeat it in the process. Then you want to tape a 4x4 under the nose so that it catches blood and it catches the cotton ball so that it doesn't fall out. The patient sits back up and they need to pinch their nostrils firmly with one hand as they would in the normal standard thing. Of course, there is, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but there is actually a pre-made nasal clamp that applies pressure for you. And so as a medic, you might want to have one of those available. I'm sure they're disposable, but you can take a look at it and see if it's something that you think that you could you could reuse in truly dire circumstances. And you wait about 15 minutes, and then you uh, remove the gauze and the packing and you basically see what happens, and up 75% of the time or so, the bleeding is completely stopped. Have your patient use the Afrin spray about every 8 hours, so the next 48 hours, keep an eye on them, and you should be good. Now, that's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour. This is Dr. Bones for Nurse Amy. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com. 
or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.